Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And I'm really excited about today's episode. Not only do we get to chat with a fantastic writer and comedian who you might know from College Humor, The Erotic Clubhouse, and UCB, but she even picked a movie that really lets us live up to the musical nature of the show's name. Please welcome Jessica Ross. Hello. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Now, like I said, my own show has a name that is related to a musical. I love musicals and I'm sure will not be a shock to anybody. I was, in fact, myself a theater kid. Is the fact that it's a musical something that directly appeals to you about today's movie, or is it an anomaly that this is a musical you like? Oh, absolutely. I also was a theater kid, and this was the first musical that I was ever in. Wow. Yeah. Big one, then. I was one of uh, 15 doo-wop girls because our school (laughs) didn't want to, like, leave anybody out. So there was literally 15 of us, like, down a stage singing (laughs) to these two people. (laughs) It was ridiculous. Yeah. That is funny because it is kind of a small cast for a show, which means that, and there's not like a ton of chorus parts either besides the doo-wop girls. That's, that makes sense, but it is funny. Where did the love of horror start for you in general? I mean, definitely horror musicals, I feel like, were my introduction into horror movies. Maybe, like, as a kid, they felt safer for parents to show you or something. But some things that were, like, more silly, campy horror, like we watched Rocky Horror as a kid. Uh, We watched a lot of Little Shop, a lot of, like, the old B-movies and stuff, or I'd watch Mystery Science Theater with my dad. So I think just, like, a love of camp and theater and over the topness. And then it wasn't until uh, recent years that I really got into like horror movies specifically, like when the Babadook came out and it follows and get out, then I kind of just got more and more into horror and then started going back and watching more. Yeah. But I love horror. That's awesome. And yeah, I think it is funny because the theatricality that is so a part of horror, I think really does create kind of a pipeline from these musicals like Rocky Horror and Bat Boy and even like Carrie and Toxic uh, Toxic Avenger have musicals. And it does, you know, it's very easy to wind up as a horror fan, uh, as a musical fan, as, uh, for sure. Oh, definitely. Because I was saying that, too, as I was watching, I was like, it's such an extreme world to live in. And like, yeah, music just comes at the height of a feeling. So like horror does feel like it really lends itself to it. Yeah, absolutely. Would you say that there is a favorite subgenre that that really draws you in? Uh, I mean, I love like a sci-fi horror, which I think this movie's so fun because it falls into everything. It's like rom-com horror, sci-fi horror, musical horror, campy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, like I love Alien. I love anything set like in space, I think seems very scary. So yeah, sci-fi horror is probably my favorite. Yeah, I can definitely get behind that. I mean, space alone is terrifying. And then you add something else in there, like a robot gone awry or oh, something definitely. or an alien. Yeah, or even oh. more than space, the ocean. I feel like I would rather be lost <laughs> in space than in the deepest of the sea. Any picture that comes out of the bottom of the sea, I'm like, that's disgusting. <laughs> that wants to kill me. <laughs> this is their planet and it's only a matter of time <laughs> before they get it back. That's right. So the movie that we're talking about today is Little Shop of Horrors, directed by Frank Oz and released in 1986. But Going back as far as possible, Little Shop had some incredible talent behind it. It started out as one of Roger Corman's infamous low-budget movies, utilizing sets and cast left over from Bucket of Blood and shooting all the interiors in a mere two days. But it developed a bit of a cult following by being attached as a B-movie 
to the very famous and very good Mario Bava movie, Black Sunday, which luck of the draw, I guess, to get just attached <laughs> to that, but a huge win for them. It also features a very young Jack Nicholson in a fun role. Yes, I actually got to watch that one recently. I have Shudder and I'm a big Joe Bob Briggs fan. So we watched his episode of it and he had Roger Corman on talking about it. And he had said it was like a bet between him and his brother. He's like, I could make a movie and at first, you know, two days, the myth becomes, but I think it was like a week, which he half did, but then they had reshoots. So he didn't totally do it, but it is so fun. I think that like the whole spirit of the film does live in this, just like, let's have fun and make something out of absolutely nothing thing or what we have here. And I think that that adds to like the quirkiness that has become or like that now still follows it. Yeah. And I also think that the fact that it is such a black comedy and it's very silly, the original one really lends itself to a movie like this that becomes kind of a pastiche of the 50s in general which is when the original one takes place uh, by virtue of coming out in 1960. Yeah, I remember watching the first one and thinking the flower shop scene felt so much like a theater set. But then when I rewatched Little Shop again last night, I was like, this one feels like a theater set. Like it does have a very like theater vibe to it still. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And because the original one does have that theater feeling as well, this led and, and of course it had, like I said, a big cult following led to the Off-Broadway show, which ran for five years, becoming, at the time of closing, the third longest running and highest grossing Off-Broadway production, which I thought was uh, very interesting. Yeah, that's so cool. And I, I know the guy who did the book for that did the it's the same music for the movie. And then I read he went on to do The Little Mermaid, which is so cool because that also... Once I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, they kind of have like a similar like definitely the villain lives in this very cool, like (laughs) over the top, like slightly sexualized and just off the charts world. And yeah, like the main protagonist, like wants to, you know, leave this place that they're in. Yeah. Yeah. To talk about those those guys in particular, both the movie and the and the off Broadway show were produced by David Geffen, who is the founder of Asylum Records and later co-founder of DreamWorks. And it had music, lyrics, and book by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, who, you know, not only for The Little Mermaid, have won multiple Academy Awards for their work on stuff like Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin as well, two huge names. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, Ashman's career was tragically cut short by HIV AIDS in 1991. So huge bummer. I didn't know that. Wow. What gifts they gave to the world. All of those are like my favorite songs in this genre. Yeah. We were talking about it. Yeah. Before we got on the podcast, but like every single song in this (laughs) is so good. Like I can't help but sing when I'm watching this movie. Yeah, it really is great. And it's, it does have that kind of feeling that they have, but those Mankin and Ashman's songs are so inherently singable. That's why people love them so much is because they just hook into you in such a great way. Top to bottom heaters for sure. And they're smart too. Like the jokes in them are so funny and they're like so detailed. I just love it. Uh, Together, these three guys started assembling the movie version even getting Spielberg on board as EP and Marty Scorsese as the director, which I Whoa, can't even Oh, I didn't imagine. know that. Wow. Hmm. I'm going to take a second to imagine. <laughs> even grittier New York, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, Charles B. Griffith, who is the writer of the original movie, had a lawsuit going that wound up getting settled by the rights holders for one fourth of 1% of the earnings of the stage musical, but getting that held up production to the point that both of those guys got busy elsewhere. 
So eventually Geffen was like, oh man, I got this movie. I don't know who to turn to. Who do I know that can work with puppets? Ah, Frank Oz, of course. Yeah. Frank Oz is perhaps most famous for puppeteering, having played the roles of Yoda, Bert, Grover, Cookie Monster, Miss Piggy, Fozzie, Animal, Sam Eagle. But in addition to all of these iconic roles of everyone's childhood, he's also been a successful actor and director over the years, including being the jail employee who gives Jake his stuff back in the Blues Brothers and directing movies like Bowfinger, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and What About Bob, in addition to this one. So quite a career. Oh, yeah. I forgot he did What About Bob and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Oh, my God. Wow. It was interesting because I remember when the new Muppet movies came out. I'm a huge Muppet fan, too, which is probably why I also love this movie. (laughs) But I remember Frank Oz giving the new ones a hard time because they weren't, like, dark enough. So it's so interesting. (laughs) I'm sure we'll get into all of this. But, like, yeah, you could see kind of what he wants to tell the stories. He has a pretty bleak outlook on things. Absolutely, he does. It is funny. When he's talking about the changes that had to get made to this and how like sad he was. That he oh, made, my like, God. When I took away my vision. And not only that, I mean, I, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but like the money that was spent on the portion that was cut. Oh I gosh. was like, oh, no, with the amount of time, it was like almost a year filming. And it's awesome. Yeah, it's so good. And you have to imagine that at the time, you know, it wasn't like people had these physical copies of things that had special features loaded on it, you know? So those guys had to probably feel like that was never going to get seen, Yeah, which is crazy to think about. Uh, There's two extra scenes, right? Then there's the dream sequence as well, which is really cool that I like. Yeah, it is a fun one. So we got a great cast in this. Yes. Rick Moranis playing Seymour Krelborn. Absolutely. Top-notch casting. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the best role. He's great in everything, but this is like, could you have picked a better person? Can't be done. Yeah. You love him throughout, like no matter exactly. what he does. <laughs> He's a murderer and we're Truly, still like, no, it's yes. okay. <laughs> they had actually cast him and then we're like, oh, we forgot to check if he can sing. <laughs> <laughs> but that luckily, is his voice, right? Yeah. Yeah. Luckily he can. Yeah. But uh, that was very uh, fortuitous because they did not check. Uh, we've also got some freaking Treehouse of Horror ass names here with Vincent Gardenia. Oh my as God, Mr. I love Mushnick. him. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. Have you seen Moonstruck? I have. I love it yeah. very much. Oh, I love him in Moonstruck. I just love He's every. So that's another one of my top movies ever. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. I'm, look, I'm so tempted. Last time it came up, I did the, the Nick Cage yelling about his arm, and people were like, you shouldn't do that again. <laughs> so. Do it. I'm resisting. No, I gotta resist. I, I gotta truly resist. did this the other day to somebody and they just like stared at me like I was like, my hand. Johnny has his bride. Johnny has his hand. Oh, what a perfect movie. Oh my god. I love anything oh, that's great. like heightened reality, but also feels so real and relatable at the same time. And I think both these yes. movies are that too. And he's a great actor for that. He's so over the top, but so realistic at the same time somehow. Yeah. It feels like we went like, oh, my grandpa is a character. Yeah. You know? like, and we also get Ellen Green as Audrey. Perfection. Also perfection. Ellen had played the role of Audrey for four years already in the stage production. And the studio was like, we're, we're going to get Cindy Lauper that we're going to throw her to the side. We're going to get Cindy. And then Cindy Lauper was like, I don't want to do this. And so they're like, okay, fine. We'll bring in Ellen. <laughs> and this was such a great decision because yeah. she knows the character inside and out. 
really helps to smooth out production and give everyone who is newer to the uh, to the piece something to work off of, something that's a little more established. And I think that this is it was just such a great decision to keep her around. Yeah, just the sincerity that she brings to it, but also again how like heightened she is and funny and like her delivery. But you just love her so much. Yeah. Yeah. Even from the first lines of like, a shiner. Oh, my <laughs> God. And every outfit, I just die. I'm like, this woman is perfection. Yeah. It's fantastic. Audrey, too, on the other hand, was voiced by Levi Stubbs from the R&B group, The Four Tops, and designed by Lyle Conway, previously an Oz collaborator on The Muppet Show, The Dark Crystal, and The Great Muppet Caper. And he would go on to work on The Blob as well, which is another fantastic special effects movie. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I was surprised to see that on the the filmography there. But, I mean, it makes sense because it's uh, they're both fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Again, I mean, just I'm going to say perfection for every single cast. (laughs) Everything was done perfectly. I mean, there's a reason it's the best horror movie ever made. It is a reason. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But this was such a complicated build. There are so many iterations of Audrey, too, you know, between ones that had the lip syncing, ones that just opened up all the way, ones that were meant to uh, chew on the legs and stuff, ones that had the the wires attached to puppetry. So he instead of having it done in pre-production, was literally working on Audrey 2's the entire way through production to make wow. sure that everything was made in time. He did get nominated for an Academy Award for his work on this movie, though, which I think is well-deserved. I know I read somewhere, too, the mouth was, like, so heavy or couldn't move fast enough, so they had to, like, speed up the rate for that singing, but not other people's, and it was, like, a technical nightmare trying to get... But it's <laughs> perfect. Yeah, it, it is interesting. So... I listened uh, to the commentary of the uh, of Frank Oz, and he he talks about this. It is wild to hear how just like by accident some of these things that make the movie so good happen. Because with that, they were looking at the footage, being like, "This looks like crap. We're never going to be able to get this." <laughs> and then as he was like rewinding the dailies, he was like, "That looks much better. What if we just like rewound it or like had the footage move faster?" oh, we can chop this down to 12 or 14 or 16 frames per second instead of 24. And everyone else will just have to move very slowly so that uh, it'll sync up in the end and uh, and look great. And it does look great. But just the fact that he was just like rewinding in frustration is how they figured that out is like, oh, brilliant, of course. That's incredible. (laughs) Wow. I'm a huge, also just practical effects fan of horror, like the the thing, anything where like, because I just think it ages so much better. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that it just also gives something for the actors to work off of. Yeah. You know, it, it has presence there more, much more than just the green dots or whatever uh, it may be. Yeah. So I agree. <laughs> During the test screenings, they discovered that they basically needed to completely redo the ending, which we already kind of touched on a little bit. The intended finale was quite dark and both of the lead actors wind up dead. And Frank said, we killed the people they loved and they hated us for it. (laughs) And David Geffen told us early on that that would be the case, but we didn't believe him. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's like, like there are movies of that time period that don't have a happy ending. 
I think it's a testament to the two actors in particular of just how much you absolutely love them. Like the entire film, Audrey literally has a song that's like, all I want in life is just a little house. And my kids like, <laughs> you don't want to see that woman die. You know, she's been beat up the whole time. Like I, I could see both sides of it. I totally get an audience being like, no. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know, someone who is dreaming that modestly deserves to at least make it to the end of yes, the movie. Yes, <laughs> yes. Or like a guy who was orphaned and basically became somewhat of a like, indentured servant to a very yeah. cranky man who was his father but never loved him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of glad both versions exist. I enjoy yes. Both of them. It's nice to be able to go and be like, I want them to live this time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or even so, like rewatching it too, kind of thinking of both of them. I'm like, even this could kind of be seen as a fantasy. Like the movie does play a lot with like, sometimes the doo-wop girls live in this fantasy world. Sometimes they're themselves. So it's like, even the happy ending seems so over the top that one could interpret it to be a fantasy in itself. Mm, so I don't know. Very true. Uh, yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but so they took this ending, which was this huge, elaborate tabletop model done by Richard Conway, who'd also done Flash Gordon in Brazil. And and like you said, the price was enormous. It cost about $5 million to execute this final scene. Wow. It all got scrapped. It's awesome. It's so great. You it's can so YouTube great. it right now, too. Pause this. Go YouTube <laughs> it. Because it, it has all these references, too. It has, like, uh, Planet of the Apes and War of the Worlds. Like, it's definitely playing with, like, what it's also paying homage to, uh, which is right. really fun. Yeah. And... Frank, like we said, was very unhappy about this, feeling that it was untrue to the story, but he did understand. He said it's not like in a play where they can come back out for bows and everyone gets to see them and say, OK, they're still there. You know, in the movie, they die and that's it. And yeah, uh, and, and he was like, I get it. So I read somewhere. I thought it was really interesting. They compared the uh, at least the one with the alternate ending to like a Greek tragedy, essentially, like your hero going and playing with this like power from the gods and then him and everyone around him suffers because of it. So in that way, it totally makes sense that then, yeah, these two would die right for noble reasons or not. And then uh, <laughs> the world is over. Yeah, that totally, I think, makes a lot of sense, especially because at the doo girls function basically as a Greek chorus the entire time. Oh, yes, time. yes. So uh, very Greek tragic indeed. People did react positively to the change, though, and it did $39 million on a budget of $25 million, although the studio did consider that underperforming. Where it really succeeded, however, was on home video. This movie did gangbusters on VHS and beta. So I think people can relate to that. I certainly had a copy of it on DVD growing up. Oh, I think yeah, everyone yeah. Did. <laughs> yeah, I think we had the VHS. I mean, it came out like the year I was born. So, of course, I didn't see it in the theaters, but it was definitely one. I remember it scared the shit out of me when I was a kid, too. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, uh, I remembered like the Mushnik part where he's like has the gun and he's leading around the steps and the girls are like whispering and ooing and then I was like, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yep, 
Yep. It's uh, it's spooky for sure. Yeah. And I think that that is something that Frank Oz really capitalizes on. Well, you know, you see people talking about how scary the dark crystal is to them as well. He worked on labyrinth, oh which has God. some scary moments. Labyrinth so. scared the shit out of me as a kid. <laughs> it still see? kind of scares me as an adult more so <laughs> than this movie. <laughs> and there's something so disturbing about like the character creations. They're like, yeah, so wrinkly and wiry <laughs> and like, Gooey, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. It's a, it's a good one though. But <laughs> Mean Green Mother from Outer Space was another Oscar nomination for the movie for Best Original Song, and interestingly, it was both the first Oscar-nominated song to be sung by a villain, and also it was the first song uh, to be nominated for an Oscar that contained profanity. Oh wow! So, yeah. I didn't know that. Yep. Unfortunately, it did lose. Like I said, they were both nominations, so it lost special effects to Aliens, which I can, I guess, kind of get. Unfortunately, they're both fantastic. This, uh, I think, has a special place in my heart because it's not building on the shoulders of giants in the way that Aliens was. That's true. But, I guess if you have to lose, though, if you're going to lose to right. like Sigourney, just take it down all <laughs> of the aliens. Like I don't know. Yeah, the Queen. If you're going to lose, you lose to the you Queen. You lose to I the two Queens. Yeah. yeah, Queen against right. Queen. And the original song lost to "Take My Breath Away" from Top Gun. <gasps> Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Many years later, Warner Brothers put a work print of the original ending out on the DVD version of it, and it was in black and white with no sound. And David Geffen freaked out. He was like, this looks like shit. What the hell are you doing? And, And Warner Brothers was like, hey, it's what we had. And he was like nobody asked me (laughs) and it turns out that he had a vhs with all the original stuff on it so that dvd got recalled and put back out with a colorized and sound put in version of the dvd and and alternate ending wow yes quite the uh quite the stumble i wonder who has their hands on that black and white one now i want to look at that clip the work print there you go that's that's something a little extra credit for people out there But it was originally released as the intended cut with this uh, new version. But Frank heard about it and he was like, I support this. And uh, it became known as the director's cut, which will be the version that will go through a plot of. So people, if you decide that you want to watch along and you weren't sure, now you know we're going to be talking about the director's cut. It's a black and white opening, which I think puts you right back in the time of the of the movie that it's supposed to be in, but also a nice little homage to the original. And then it transitions into color and we get this Star Wars scroll over the entract and right into the titular song. And it's just so great. What an amazing, amazing opening. I love the transition from the space background of the text crawl to the puddle in Skid Row really just brings you right into the movie like that. Definitely. Yeah. And so like of the, the genre that it's playing with too, to have the, yeah, like that scroll, <laughs> like setting up the world. And then, yeah, I love it. And I did, like I said, listen to the commentary and Frank Oz was an incredible guide from a technical perspective. He talks so much about the like logistics of making this movie that it was really fascinating. I really recommend it to people who are interested in how movies get made, but he talks about how difficult this opening was to get right because there's a whopping 16 cues that they had to nail right for the opening in terms of the bottle crashing, the flash of lightning, the shadow of the girls coming at like, it's when you when he starts breaking it down, you realize exactly how much work went into every aspect of this movie because it's not just the music that has the rhythm, but 
every single piece of this, the way that people move has a rhythm. It's choreographed to the nth degree. It's just so well done and so in depth that it's, it's kind of shocking. Definitely. And so many jokes too, like within yeah. the, with, which I love uh, so many like visual jokes, like it's so thoughtful in so many ways. Absolutely. This was an interior set in London, not uh, a real street, which first of all, like you said, really adds to the theatrical feeling of it, which I think is a great decision. But it also always kind of blows my mind at the scale they're working on, where they're just like, yeah, we built a whole street. I'm just like, that is shot. Like, that's crazy to me. (laughs) Yeah, I absolutely love that about it. I love that it feels like it's a play. And then even like anytime this is later on, but like I'm thinking of the dentist when he's on the thing, like we're not on a street. It's like a backdrop of a street. And he's just has like little handlebars. (laughs) Like it's always made to feel. Yeah, it, it keeps that aesthetic throughout. Yeah. And it's funny that is that one shot is actually the only remaining vestige of the model of the city that gets destroyed in the in the intended ending. Oh, wow. um, That's left in the theatrical cut because they they did a like composite with him in front of it. So that's the model of New York that they wind up destroying. There you go. Five million (laughs) dollar shot right there. That's right. The opening song, like you said, not only has a bunch of really great gags, but it does a fantastic job of introducing the setting designed by Roy Walker uh, as the production designer. And I love the 50s adapted Greek chorus of Crystal, Ronette, and Chiffon. They're so fun and such a great, like every time that they show up on screen, you're just like, oh, we're about to have a great time here. Definitely. Yeah. That is the exact vibe that they bring. Yeah. And this is a huge improvement over the stage show, in my opinion, where they just kind of walk on and walk off. Here, they're much more entwined with the story, kind of showing up all over the place, helping to keep the camera moving and giving us an anchor to transition us from location to location. And this was actually the cinematic piece of the puzzle that convinced Frank to take the job because he felt it was a little too static and too stagey as as written originally. And so when he came back to it, he said, these three girls are the ones who are going to help kind of carry us through the movie. Another really great decision, I think. Definitely. And I love that they have their heightened fantasy, like doo-wop girl clothes, but then we get to see them as the like street urgents in right. like just their regular casual wear. And they have like their own fleshed out lives too. And wants and desires like outside of this as well, even though we don't explore it as much as the other characters. Right. Even the fact that they are named in the movie, I yeah. feel like is a huge <laughs> like victory for them to not just be like, oh, the three girls. Like, yeah. That's Chiffon, Ronette and Crystal. Like we know them. <laughs> Yeah. They lead us along to meet Seymour Krellborn, a real klutz, as we see from him immediately dropping a shelf full of plants on himself <laughs> to his boss, Mr. Moshnik's displeasure. The news reports a total eclipse of the sun last week, and we're also introduced to Audrey, who is arriving late to work, mostly because she was getting beat up by her abusive and sadistic boyfriend, Steve Martin DDS. Uh, his name, it's, it's like Oren uh, Scrivelli, I think. Is yeah, the yeah. Audrey and Seymour have unacted upon crushes on each other, each one feeling that they don't deserve the other one. Oh, so sad. So, so sad. <laughs> and watching this too, again, it was so interesting that both Oren and Mr. Mushnick kind of exhibit like the same monster qualities that the monster himself does. Like they don't really have much regard for other people. It's only like what they can get out of them. And that Seymour sees this as like, oh, she must like, like that in a person. And like, I'm not that. So I need to like become more of this in order to be like liked or respected or which is yeah. so sad. Oh, 
Oh, it's it's and so then awful. she and assumes, yeah, because she came from like this certain type of way, she doesn't deserve somebody like Seymour. It's so heartbreaking. It really is. And everyone is just lamenting the state of their lives, pretty much. Yeah. Oh my God. How relatable too. Uh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> Watch, this is the first time I've watched it post-COVID. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it really is kind of brutal. You know, everyone they sing Skid Row, they all talk about how easy it is to get caught under the wheel yeah and and the rich are getting richer and we're fucking cleaning their floors and they don't even give a shit if we live or die oh man it's like yeah guys do you want to know what happens uh 60 years later (laughs) it's a lot worse now there's only like six (laughs) of them that are really rich (laughs) it's rough and it like you said it does still feel very timely unfortunately yeah Um, i do however really like the costuming for all of the residents of Skid Row. Yeah. Um, I think that in a in an area where this is a very theatrical and over-the-top movie, they still look like real people. They've got some dignity left to them by Frank Oz and company, I think, in a way that it would be very easy for this to feel like it's making fun of these people instead. Definitely. I, yeah, felt a very similar way. It's like, it, it just expresses everyone happened to be born into this or there through certain circumstances. And they all like want more and better, just like everybody else, but they're just like trapped in this situation. And Frank said that he purposely kept this particular scene into tighter shots to indicate the way that everyone did feel trapped. And I think it definitely does communicate that. Yeah. Especially when they're like crawling over the fence. Oh my oh. God. <laughs> uh, Mushnick says that he is in fact going to close the store, but Audrey and Seymour launch into a planned campaign to utilize some of Seymour's strange and interesting plants on display to attract business. And to this end, he unveils Audrey too. And boy, does this look good in its little coffee can here. Oh Yeah. I read somewhere all of the set pieces were from thrift stores and that the can in particular was like hard to find one of like the time period that felt right to like put uh, Audrey to in. Yeah, it was so funny listening to the commentary. He talks about the washing machines in particular and how they would like buy new washing machines and find people who had the old time, like correct ones and be like, we will trade you this new washing machine for your old 50s one. Please give it to us. That's incredible. (laughs) Somebody's got to come do that for me and my refrigerator right now. Yeah, someone make a movie. Yeah, Frank uh, I, I got a one too. Movie from the uh, the seventies, eighties. <laughs> you heard her, Frank. Let's get it going. <laughs> but to their surprise, it does immediately attract someone into the shop. Who should this be but famed mockumentarian Christopher Guest of all people? Again, perfection. The way he delivers every single line is so funny. Oh my god. Yeah. It's really great. Frank said that he originally was delivering it just like normal and he had to keep being like no, more, more, more. <laughs> He's like a like alluded to he is just like just such a guy on like that you would see in a theatrical production that like, comes in for a weird line. <laughs> he said a line. I thought I wrote it down. It was so funny. I took little notes and I don't know where they are. But yeah, he's perfect in it. He is perfect. And Seymour, he explains where he got this plant that attracted this guy in. During the total eclipse of the sun, the plant showed up among the inventory of a man who occasionally sells Seymour exotic cuttings. It arrived via lightning, one of just two optical effects. Uh, The rest are all practical, like we said, what Frank called floor effects. And so Seymour took Audrey to home for $1.95. Very reasonable. Yes, yes. 
<laughs> this is my first time watching it, uh, like with eyes of just like, oh, there is a bit of like a, a weird kind of otherism that they're doing with like getting it from the Asian market. And but that felt like such a thing of the time period too. Like when you rewatch Gremlins and he goes gets the Gremlin from the the Asian market. So like. Yeah, that was a weird kind of trope that they played with in the 80s a lot. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, luckily, it's not uh, too. I think that compared to something like Gremlins, where yes. they really kind of settle in it, um, this is kind of over and done pretty quick, which is great. Yeah, but it I definitely agree. does exist. Christopher Guest buys $100 worth of roses and quickly more and more rich people start making the trek to Mushniks. And this was something that really stood out to me this time is it feels to me like there might be something here about the way that people escape poverty through entertainment positions. But by doing that, you have to kind of, there's an element of like positioning yourself as an alien or selling the things that make you unique so that people can gawk at you in a way that can sometimes feel gross. I was thinking like he kind of sees it and instinctually knows that there's something special about it and brings it. And then like other people catch on to his good taste in a way. Like it's almost like when you are like a creative in any sense, like you create something and then people want to kind of, if it's of a certain quality, come and see it or are interested in it. And then of course, as the movie goes on, it's like, then the more you kind of have to give or keep that up or keep it going. And then like, how much of yourself do you lose in trying to keep this? I mean, me think a lot about like making stuff for the internet or like you know uh like you make this one fun thing and then you have this like pressure of having to keep doing it to that degree all the time and how are like what other people want to take from (laughs) me because of it yeah seymour he he does he get he has to give so much of himself he makes this faustian deal and he thinks that by becoming or reaching another level or what he sees as another level that then he'll finally be good enough for people in this instance, Audrey and that like self-loathing that goes into it. Oh, um, It was, it was brutal. Or just, yeah, like the, yeah, I'll be, I'll finally be respected. I'll finally, but then it never like stops. Then you have to keep like feeding that. Yeah. You never get to be enough. It's always like this thing then. And if that goes away, then they'll see that I'm just pathetic me. Which right. is so if sad. This is, <laughs> it's so relatable. If this is going to be bigger than hula hoops, then what's going to be bigger than Audrey too? Yes. <laughs> In addition to this uh, sort of playing into them feeling like this is a way to escape poverty, Audrey also reveals that part of the reason for her staying with her boyfriend is that he makes good money. Yeah. She says he's a professional. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> this is yeah. terrible. Although Mr. Mushnick does say to leave him, which I was like, there all right, there times, you go. He's yes. an ally. Old Mush has got a little bit of sense in him. (laughs) (laughs) She also says that he's the only guy she's got to Seymour's chagrin. Yeah. Audrey, too, is withering up, though. So Seymour is charged with staying at the flower shop and nursing it back to health. He sings Grow For Me and discovers by slicing his thumb on some uh, rose thorns that the special nutrient Audrey, too, needs is human blood. Yeah, you got to give of yourself. That's right. The ultimate sacrifice. I think it's also, of course, very appropriate for how it's discovered that Audrey 2 wants this is, you know, the thorns hidden among the roses of the promises that they make and everything. Yeah. Seymour does, in fact, give it a few drops if that will appease. But of course, it can only appease for so long. And as he leaves, Audrey 2 does, in fact, grow for him. And this looks so good. Frank was explaining how they did this shot. And basically, 
It's forced perspective in a way where the plant is not actually in the can and the roots are part of the can. And then the plant uh, just moves forward in order to grow. It's wild. I'm telling you, this commentary is nuts. (laughs) I have to watch it. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so cool. I was just watching on YouTube, like Lord of the Rings, how they like set up different shots. Yes. I love shit like that. It's 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 yeah. very impressive. He was talking about a scene you wouldn't even think of, like when they're just sitting at like the table and like chit chatting, <laughs> and he's like, "I was like in life, we had, we're at this giant like dining table at different ends, but in the scene, it looks like they're right next to each other." Like that's amazing that's that people magic. can do these things. Yeah, it's literal Absolutely. magic. Seymour is appearing on WSKID Radio Zoo program to discuss the plant now operated by four to five puppeteers uh, below frame and what would wind up being uh, 60 at the most operating uh, the puppet with Weird Wink Wilkinson played by (laughs) John Candy in another delightful role as always from him. One of just two people who were allowed to ad lib in this movie. Yeah, what a treasure. I absolutely love this man. Fantastic. And and even these little like cameo roles like this, he just brings so much to the table with He's it. He's just really a fantastic. guy you want to hug. <laughs> I just like <laughs> absolutely adore him. Absolutely. And unfortunately, Audrey Classic, Audrey Prime, misses the broadcast saying she didn't get tied up, just handcuffed a little. <laughs> and uh, her arm is also in a very chic lace sling. Oh my God, the sling. I am like, <laughs> how is that working? That can't be giving you a lot of support right now. You need to see a doctor. <laughs> Who can afford doctors? Truly, yeah. The choir also tries to convince her to dump the dentist and get with Seymour. And she says two things. First, Uh, In a terrifying reflection of actual abusive relationships, she posits, if he does this when he likes me, imagine what he'd do if he got mad. Uh, Terrifying. Yes. She also continues to demonstrate her own low self-esteem, saying she doesn't deserve someone like Seymour, which leads into the song Somewhere That's Green, which, as we've already talked about, talk about shooting low. I mean, there's so many good songs, but... But this one really does touch my heart in like just such a special way because it's not only so sweet, so sad, but it's so funny. Like it's just every she gives you everything. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. And it is funny that this it is very sweet, but this is also in a movie about like killing and alien monsters destroying the U.S. Like this is one of the bleaker moments where all all she wants is like the barest luxuries, like a chain link fence, a husband who's nice. Yeah. And it just really creates this understanding of the desperation that she feels eating TV Um, dinners in front of their enormous (laughs) uh, 12 inch screen. Oh man. I got to say I'm on board for the nine 15 bedtime though. (laughs) I was like, I love, I thought the exact same thing. There were so many things in the song. I was like, wow. Homeownership. Like, I am living this right now. <laughs> Audrey, we can dream. We'll do really, it. Really? Yeah, I've never related. The older I get, I'm like, wow, to have a house, a rancher, no stairs. That sounds nice. <laughs> the scene itself, in addition to the song, though, is also really great. I love when they push the theatricality of the source material. This fantasy moment 
really does feel uh, very over the top. You know, you get Rick Moranis like waving while he's mowing the lawn and everything. Just very sweet, very cute, very over the top in a way that I uh, really enjoy. Yeah, they even give him like a little beer gut, like in her fantasy, he has like a little pooch. It's so cute. And she has friends coming to her house with like Tupperware, which like clearly Mm -hmm. she doesn't have these girlfriends in her life right now. It's just so sad. It really is. When they transition from the dream sequence to real life, they literally had to stack two cranes on top of each other for the camera to pull out and transition to the rooftop because they were like... This is there just no cranes exist that can carry this camera that far. Wait to get the shot of the girls up on top of the yeah. Oh wow. That's yeah, so that's two cranes. And he said that they didn't really use a lot of like steady cam stuff, especially for things like this. So there's a little wobbling that he points out in the camera because (laughs) it's literally a crane stacked on top of a crane just sitting there shaking in the wind. But it works. It looks great. I will say of the 15 duop girls, this song up on the roof was my solo. (laughs) I know. Yeah. And I am not a good singer. No one should have ever given me a solo, but they did. I think as I was like older, they were like, let her just do something before she goes <laughs> to are, the next grade. Yeah. Up on that rooftop, there's a big neon choose sign. Frank was talking on the commentary about how they tried to push product placement there. And he was like, fuck that. I'm not putting a Pepsi sign up there. Hell yeah. (laughs) Solidarity, Frank. Wow. This gave me a lot of the scenes too. I don't know if he ever speaks to like West Side Story, but I do get a West Side Story vibe from a lot of aspects too. Like when they're on the roof dancing in West Side Story, that part reminds Mm -hmm. me of that or like very like Tony and Maria at times with Audrey and Seymour. Yeah. And like the brick and the streets and the gates. Exactly. Yeah. You get... um all the fire escapes and everything kind of bring that feeling to it. There is some irony in this chorus singing about how Seymour is having some fun now. And there he is sitting in his tiny apartment, cutting up his hands and looking miserable. (laughs) (laughs) They actually shot a ton of this, but in the previews, people got squeamish about the bloodletting. They said like just the little tiny cuts were much more upsetting to people than like the destruction and death of all the, all the people. So those got cut. Oh, wow. Interesting. I guess that makes that's maybe more visceral versus something yeah. that feels so you're not going to be eaten by a plant, but you might like cut your finger. Famous last words. These audiences had a lot of famous last words. My plant. Um, yeah, these audience got to have a lot of say in this movie. Sure did. I don't like cutting. Get that <laughs> out of here. It's like, well, go make your own movie. <laughs> Well, you know, this is uh, this is where Warner Brothers uh, had to had to smack him on the hands with the uh, the ruler and say, come on, Frank, rein it in. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like other movies that like Taxi Driver existed before this kid, like other like, but I guess it didn't have the same feel like this does yeah. teeter in a world of like campy and silly. But so I guess I can get yeah. why tonally things are feel more like, oh, this feels off or this feels right for it. Sure. That does make sense. I also love this moment where he becomes forgetful thanks to his anemia and uh, the joke about the Shivas being an important funerary account since sitting Shiva is part of the Jewish mourning ritual um, in the original movie. There is uh, Sitten Shiva is the name of, oh of my the woman God. <laughs> who comes in all the time. And it was very funny. 
And I was like, wow, bringing me back to my, to my youth of, uh, <laughs> of having to deal with that. But he, it looks like he and Audrey are finally making some progress when she reveals that she has a date that night. And we finally get our first look at Steve Martin as Oren Scrivello DDS cruising in on his motorcycle and leather jacket. What an hair. introduction. Oh man. Just outrageously good. He's singing about loving to cause pain as he <laughs> rolls in. I know I said the last time was the song of the movie, but this song is so good too. So yes. funny. It's like so smart. Oh my God. There's a ton of great visual gags during the song as well. In addition to the song itself being very funny and good. The shot from inside the mouth and it's him and the Incredible. girls are behind. I'm like, this is it. Ugh. It's so great. I love that shot as well. Or the shrine to his mother. Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) That drill was about two feet long to match the smaller one. Oh my god. Because the mouth, I guess, was so big. Yeah, that makes sense. Here I thought I was inside a mouth. (laughs) (laughs) But this is also where we discover that he has a taste for the laughing gas that he's supposed to use on his clients. Steve Martin is just so good at playing people with a real cruel streak. I think that that is really something that he excels at. And it makes it kind of genuinely scary when he goes to Mushniks to pick up Audrey. And, you know, it's very silly as he flies in on his motorcycle and he's huffing gas. And then when he whirls around to intimidate her, it just becomes so real all of a sudden. It's also thanks to Ellen Green for making it feel real. Obviously, this wouldn't exist without her being able to conjure up that feeling of being scared. But the two of them together, it just really feels like it comes out of nowhere, cuts you off at the at the knees, and it's just very scary to me. Yeah, I think it's such interesting casting because I think, yeah, for a villain, you could have e- easily gone with someone who maybe more traditionally plays villains, but he's able to just jump. You almost like don't know what to expect from him at any point, which oftentimes yeah. happens with abusers as well. <laughs> it can kind of yes. just, yeah go off the rails out of nowhere. I totally agree. Seymour complains about him to Tui as he's taken to calling Audrey Tui. Great nickname. And as he goes to leave, Tui reveals something shocking. It can talk. It can sing. (laughs) Very fun moment. I love this introduction. This is where you really start to see the moments where Rick Moranis had to move slow so that he could be sped up to the animation of the puppet. An incredible challenge. They said mostly 16 frames per second instead of 24, while a dozen puppeteers sat in a tank under the set to move the leaves and vines. And Brian Henson, son of Jim Henson, was dressed in vines himself and hidden behind the plant to oh, move them out. Wow. Yeah, so oh family biz. <laughs> Brian Henson gave us Muppet Christmas Carol, right? I believe that's the case. Yes. Another one of truly the best movies ever made. <laughs> also, Dirty Ron Scoundrels, Michael Caine, Frank Oz connection. There you go. Oh, my God. It's all coming together, folks. This scene, an average of 30 takes with only 10 seconds per take on every moment of this. Wow. Yes. Frank said that it was an absolute nightmare trying to get the lip syncing right. (laughs) But it works out. Looks absolutely fantastic. I guess the those 30 takes, they must have had at least one in there. That looked good. It looks incredible. It's so fun. It's so real. It's so, like he's such a character. You totally buy into the whole thing. And the song, again, is so funny. But yeah, it's crazy uh, watching it this time, too. Just like seeing what a manipulator the plant is as well. He kind of 
seems to be steps ahead usually of Seymour and just knows like, yeah, finds all different ways to get him to do the things that he wants him to do. That's (laughs) Dewey. But yeah, he, you know, he lays down the rules for Seymour in this delightful song, feed me parentheses, get it. He promises untold successes and riches if Seymour will feed him live humans. And hey, you could do it Dexter style, only take out people who deserve it. Why not start with the good doctor? And Seymour is seduced into it finally at the thought of being what he deems good enough for Audrey. And the guy sure looks like plant food to me. Yeah. And I think he decides too in seeing like the slap from the shadow. So like you as the audience are also like, yeah, I want that guy. It's time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't like that guy either. That's right. Yeah. It looks like plant food. Levi Stubbs was really pushed to bring kind of a demonic edge to the voice of Audrey too, to emphasize the Faustian parallels between this show and the Faustian legend. I think that he does such an amazing job of kind of having that like purr in the voice that feels very seductive and like he is your friend, but there is that edge to it that uh, really keeps you off balance as well. It's just a really fantastic voice performance. Yeah. You can't be so scary that he wouldn't listen to him or he would just get rid of him. Like he's such a, (laughs) yeah. Like I was saying, a manipulator, like he knows how to get what he wants out of, cause he knows what all these people want. The next day, Bill Murray goes to the dentist and is extremely eager to get in the chair. (laughs) Yes. And this is just so, so funny. He was the other one person allowed to ad lib. And to that end, they kept Steve Martin's lines extremely scripted in order to give Bill something to riff off of, which is something that can unfortunately, when people are like, oh, we're going to just improv this scene. If you don't have something to go off of, it can become very difficult to keep the scene moving in a way that feels organic. So I think that that was a really another great decision for someone who is a very funny guy. You know, I'm sure it was tempting to be like, yeah, go ahead. Just do whatever you want. But they kept him scripted and let Bill Murray kind of uh, have this moment to shine. And I think that it works really well. And this would be the equivalent of the Jack Nicholson role from the OG Little Shop. Yeah, which that scene I remember going on really long. I feel like this one kind of gets to the joke faster and a little bit better. Well, it's funny too, because they, in the original one, he's like, all right, you're done. And Jack Nicholson's like, that's it. And he has to like go back in. <laughs> yeah. That, that really uh, relates to exactly what you're saying. He's They really uh, soak in it. I guess they were like, this is our big moment. <laughs> yeah. While the dentist is occupado and Bill Murray is ecstatic, Seymour enters the waiting room with a gun. Uh, Dr. Oren is furious that Bill is enjoying it. And so he throws him out and he pulls Seymour into the chair 32 takes it took for them to decide on an like an ending joke, which winds up being the fact that he like stole the little oh, tool. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's so <laughs> funny. Oh, my God. That little joke is so funny. Yeah. Like, oh, how did that get in there? <laughs> <laughs> so Oren is going to take a look at Seymour, but first a little giggle gas, he says. And he straps on this intense contraption to really get the gas flowing. And Seymour pulls his gun. But when the doctor goes to remove his gas tank and deal with this, the valve falls off. He's scared that he'll asphyxiate, but he also can't help laughing. And they said that this was super challenging to have to fake laugh so much, which I can definitely understand. I bet, yeah. I will say, I this is one of the moments where I am sad that the movie does not have uh, Now It's Just the Gas, which is a very fun song. But it is still a very fun scene as he expires with simple laissez-faire. 
So. I agree. I do like, and the dentist is just such a fun character. You want to see another song, yeah. but yeah, this scene, a moment really struck out to me more than other watchings is when he's like, Seymour says, you know, are the dentist is like, why are you doing this? And he's like, what you did to her. And the dentist is like, who? Like, he doesn't even Oof. know. Audrey, like, he doesn't even think about her. I was like, you right. asshole. <laughs> it's really rough. I think that it is a, a nice little moment for us to really feel vindicated in this death. Yeah. It's one last little twist of the knife for us to say, Seymour is doing the right thing. This is a good move. Yeah. To that end, he very subtly drags the body to the florists, which is very funny. It's just <laughs> thumping down the stairs. And Tui has the meal of a lifetime. But Mushnik sees Seymour chopping up the body. Seymour comforts Audrey, who feels bad for wishing harm on Oren. This is, I think, another moment that is uh. very painful. Because it feels very realistic. She like goes back and forth with this guilt of like, I I feel bad because I wanted this to happen. Like he was so mean to me. I had wished something would happen and now it did. But I don't know if he deserved that, which I think is a great moral of the whole, the, or at least killings and, you know, what's going on as a whole too. Like, yeah, he's bad, but is this the best is killing someone and feeding it to your plant to get what you want the best way to go about it? Or do you? break up with him or call the cops or, you know. Yeah, absolutely. She also feels, uh, reveals some guilt about her past, which I wasn't quite sure exactly what her old job was. It seemed like she might've been like a dancer or something. Yeah. I do love the line I had to wear trashy clothes, not classy stuff like this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you are an angel. I love you. That's, that's classic Audrey right there. Yeah. But they together are able to move past this. They sing Suddenly Seymour and they smooch. Uh, this smooch took 36 takes because there was a big master shot rotation after following Rick up the stairs. That was very challenging, they said. It feels so big in scope. That's such a, that's another great song. Oh my God. Yeah, uh, it's really fantastic. And she and it's just very cathartic kills it in it. Like she really, it's so good. Totally agree. He floats home and Mushnik confronts him there. Tui sings about it being supper time. And there's another interesting change from the stage show that I wanted to get your opinion on here, where here suddenly uh, when Seymour is like, I didn't kill him, but I did chop him up. Mushnik says, tell it to the police. And he whips out his gun. But in the stage show, he says it more like, come with me and we'll tell it to the police and like explain like, oh, you didn't actually kill them. Much more on Seymour's side in that, which makes it a little more fucked up, I think, that Seymour continues to go down the dark path and kills Mushnik in his cover-up. It does make sense to me in this movie that that doesn't happen because they're not as close in the movie. They get rid of Mushnik and Son, so there's less of a relationship there between them. And also, interestingly, this is the only version without that relationship. But, you know, it is uh, an, straining that relationship even more, I guess, is what I wanted to get your opinion on. Yeah, I know he says, I'll take you to the police, but I almost in my mind, because after that, he's like, or you could like skip town and just leave me the plant. I feel like that's kind of his end goal the whole time. Like he knows Seymour. He knows that he can kind of, again, manipulate him and push him to do what he wants him to do. I don't think he cares one way or another if he killed somebody or if he just wants this plant. And it's like, well, if Seymour's gone, then I'll get all the money. And Seymour's done everything that he kind of can for me. This is the Mm -hmm. next big thing. So to me, 
it definitely yeah, makes him more insidious than in the play, but it, I don't think he ever planned on taking him to the police. I think that he wanted to just scare him in some way to go away and then he or whatever he had to do to get the plant yeah. for himself. He would have done. Makes sense to me. And Seymour backs him into Tui instead, and Tui I mean, promptly eats the heck out of him. That's the thing, too. At this point, Seymour, like, this does make, at this point, it was like, this is why the alternate ending makes more sense, because it's like, we almost got the happy ending and suddenly Seymour, but now the story keeps going, and we see that he's still making these decisions. He could just say, yeah, I'll just leave. I'll go with Audrey. and I'll, But he does kind of back him into the plant. He certainly doesn't say, hey, my plant's mouth is open <laughs> and you're about to be eaten. So he kind of half, it makes a choice, I suppose. Or he's like, seems conflicted, but isn't saying no. He's clearly like allowing something to happen that he could have prevented. Yeah, it's the same kind of thing with the dentist where he could have helped him get the mask off. Instead, he just lets, oh, I didn't kill him. The gas killed him. Oh, yeah, the everything. Killed him. Yeah, it's like by accident, but it is like, you know, you are complicit, a part of these things. Yeah, yeah. The opportunities continue to pile up as the meek inherit the earth and Tui has gotten enormous or even more enormous and he wants food. But Seymour is getting panicked about the murders and how quickly his life has changed. Plus, now that he and Audrey are together, he's terrified of losing her and and feeling like uh, he still feels like he's not good enough for her. And so that uh, fraudulence that permeates his opinions of himself is dragging him down. Yeah, this scene in particular, maybe even more than the ending, I miss not having it in the original version because A, it feels so like, old Hollywood with the big sound stages, but then there would be almost like dancing or like weird artsy scene happening. And I love the blood going down Mushnik's painting. And then when Mm -hmm. Seymour turns into the plant, like he's literally like, I am the murderer. And so it's a much more interesting way to visually see his guilt and his reasoning than when it's cut. And then he just says, I feel guilty. I can't take this anymore. Not that that's not good. And we can, you know, assume these things because he's, overall a nice person but Uh yeah i just like that visualization of it better and it plays into a lot of other movies so i like that it feels like stuff from oklahoma or like other musicals these weird fantasy how to succeed in business uh huge homage there for like the coffee break sequence when uh chiffon and the gang are you know working in the yeah yeah everything (laughs) i love this song It's great. It is really good. Seymour asks Audrey to marry him and leave town after collecting a fat check from the TV producers tomorrow. And she happily says yes and leaves to go get ready. Now, the following doesn't happen in the theatrical in order to keep Audrey alive, like we discussed at the beginning. So just keep that in mind as we move forward. Uh, um, He tells Audrey, too, that he's done and offers to get him some ground beef. Tui, after some resistance, says fine, but is really just getting Seymour out of the way so that he can drag himself over to the register, steal a coin, and place a phone call, (laughs) which is just this amazing practical puppetry. It's so funny. I love the little phone cord wrapped around his tendril and the tapping on the glass and everything. It's just very corny in the best way. Yeah, yeah. it's just so thoughtful. Yeah, just to like live in those moments is so enjoyable. Yeah. The call is to Audrey Prime, and he introduces himself to her And then another last little one where he checks the coin slot, which is also very funny. (laughs) (laughs) 
she runs over and he asks for a drink. But when she goes to do that, he chows down on her. And Seymour returns while she's being chewed and he pulls her out, but it's too late. She's a goner. Yeah. She tells him to feed her to the plant, though, because it can keep growing and Seymour can get all the wonderful things that she thinks he deserves. Plus, that way they can always be together when she's part of the plant somewhere that's green in a reprise. I like this a lot. I think it works really well. This is That's the kind of thing where somewhere that's green makes sense for the first song, but then when they tie it into like the permanence of being part of the plant, you're yeah. just like, oh, it all, it all comes together. I love it. Yeah, it's really poetic. It's yeah, it's beautiful. It is. And it remains beautiful as I as Seymour takes her body to Audrey too. And I love the way that this is shot, you know, not only the intimidating look of the plant looming over him, but the gentleness of the farewell. Like it feels like he's like sending like a boat funeral out and like yeah. pushing it into the lake. It's really fantastic. Yeah, just a lot of love between these two and like a lot of sadness, like kind of they had everything that they needed all along, but they didn't like allow themselves to just do it. Like they both wanted the exact same thing, but didn't get it. Seymour runs out and contemplates throwing himself off the roof, but it is stopped by a man from international licensing and marketing. <laughs> by a Belushi. That's right. In Well, in the theatrical, it's Jim Belushi. He had to step in because Paul Dooley was in the director's cut. But when they went to go do the reshoots, he was like, I'm busy. What do you want from me? <laughs> so Jim Belushi <laughs> had to step in. He reveals that he's taken a cutting of Audrey too. And with Seymour's permission, we'll get one into every house in America. It'll be bigger than hula hoops. I was trying to think, I was like, what's an update for this? Pogs, fidget spinners. What is, what is Audrey two? Uh, uh, iPads. There you go. That's definitely it. And the Audrey two cutting smirks evilly. I just love that little cutie in the little box like that. The little ones are, yeah. Or when, I mean, we're getting to, but when the, all the little ones come out, I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I love this. He rushes back down to yell at Tui and decides it's got to stop right now. But Tui says he's in charge now. And the pot he's in explodes <sighs> as the roots continue to grow. Little mouths appear on the vines. Like you said, it's really fantastic. And they all warn him that he's a mean green mother from outer space as Seymour shoots his gun at him. And this is the moment where it becomes uh, 60 performers moving the puppet when it's at its most with all the vines in the mouth were going at once. Although Frank said it was more like an average of 30 at once for most of the shots. That makes sense. Yeah. It's incredible. It's such a great sequence. What a great final song. <laughs> at yeah. least from uh, him. Yeah. It really feels like the character too. I yeah. think and it's, a, it's a great one. Audrey Du gets the gun and says, hey, man, if you want to live, chill the hell out. And Seymour says, no, thank you, and charges with the axe. And Audrey Du has had enough amazing puppetry as he tears the place down. I think this looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's cool, too, because clearly he, in a way, still does need Seymour if he, like, wouldn't just instantly eat him. He's not so much in control where, like, he still needs that puppet. So I like that yeah. he holds a gun and is like, why don't you calm down? Yeah. <laughs> and just listen to me. Exactly. And here's where the movie pretty much ends for the theatrical version, because like we said, Audrey getting killed didn't happen. And she sees Seymour buried in the rubble and Tui laughing. And then Hand sticks out with an electric cable and electrocutes the plant, which explodes. And it's very funny to know that it's reshoots, because once you know, it's incredibly obvious that this wasn't Rick Moranis's hand that like shot out. <laughs> and it's very deliberately just an arm. But 
it's, it, I mean, it still absolutely works for me as a happy ending because they get up, you know, there's this moment where it looks like he might've sacrificed himself to end it all, but Rick Moranis walks out, he and Audrey hug and they run off into their somewhere that's green dream home, pan down and reveal a baby Audrey two in the garden fun ending. And I like that. It, you know, gives a little, little something extra for, yeah. uh, for Audrey two there. Everyone gets to go and live their, their dream life. Nice little thing. Yeah. Or knowing that it's not, you know, even with the happy ending, like it's not over. There's like a wink mm. of like, yeah. Instead in the, in the intended version, as Seymour emerges from the rubble, he gets grabbed by Tui and slowly brought into his gullet. <laughs> very dark. <laughs> it's, it's just very funny that it's so the complete opposite direction. Yeah. And it's so deliberate. And Tui laughs and the chorus tells us that subsequent to the events we have just witnessed, Tui's plan was enacted successfully and they devoured the U.S. Unsuspecting jerks from Maine to California. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Oh, I love. Yeah. When the family's like watching TV and like the leaf comes out and gets the, I'm like, this is all just, and it just keeps heightening and heightening. And then it's like rolling through the streets. I just love this whole look. It's really fantastic. First of all, the final Ultimo don't feed the plants is an amazing, amazing song. Yeah. I love a lot. Second of all, this just looks so great as he's, it's like a secret Kaiju movie where he just rampages down the streets and just starts tearing up apartment buildings and stuff. It's so fantastic. I do love that. He also burst through a a movie theater showing Jason and the Argonauts, which is a landmark movie and stop motion and monster animation. So a nice little homage there. I think that's great. Also love the train right into the mouth. That's a lot of fun. There's just so (laughs) many great visuals in it. Yeah. It's such a, yeah. Yeah. And it concludes with with one final great visual. Audrey two atop the statue of Liberty, strangling the representation of America with the end over it. Very Planet of the Apes, but now Planet of the Plants. Yeah, yeah. King Kong, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Planet of the Apes. And then, of course, Tui bursts through uh, the the end. And uh, it's, it's just, it's a fantastic ending to a fantastic movie. And now, Jess, we've reached the point of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. I think that this is the best horror movie ever made because I think that good horror heightens reality and brings, but also feels that there's something at its core that's like very humane and like relatable. And I, and the whole movie is essentially about losing your humanity, which I think, you know, is very scary. Like maybe in and of itself, it's not like jump scares or you're sitting there, but you are so invested in these characters. People were so invested in these characters that they literally said, we need a new and different ending because we cannot see bad things happen to them. So I think people see so much of themselves. I think so many people feel like they are in a shitty situation that they can't quite get out of and they dream of something more and something better. So not only the best horror movie ever made, but just one of the best movies ever made. I think that this movie is so special and so unique. There's not really many other movies that you could point to and say that this movie is a lot. Like, it's just its own unique thing, which I love. I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it really rides an interesting line in a way that almost no other movies are able to do, which is that by nature of being a musical, there is a fantastical element to it. 
And, you know, we, you are already having to buy into the fact that people are just going around singing in their daily lives. But because the characters themselves are so grounded and they're so relatable, and like you said, you can really see yourself in them dreaming of a way to get out of the situation that they're in, that it blends them in such an effortless way. And it creates this wonderful, fantastical musical that we get to have all these wonderful songs with. But it's also something that we can really take the time to relate to these characters and see ourselves in them in a way that is cathartic. To, you know, Even if it does have the tragic ending, to see yourself on screen and say, I understand what these characters are going for, searching for any way to raise their station. I think it's really fantastic. And that doesn't even begin to touch on the incredible performances, the absolute spectacular puppetry, the the whip smartness of the script that is just hilarious from top to finish, top to bottom even, and start to finish. And it's just the best horror movie ever made. It's just juggling a lot. It's like sci-fi and horror and musical and Greek tragedy and romance. And it does it all pretty seamlessly. It's just able to combine to be this one special, unique thing. And I think it's such like a timeless story, too. Like it was made in the 80s where clearly, you know, Wall Street and people feeling disenfranchised and like crapped all over by capitalism. Like it just is so relatable both then. Like it makes sense why it was made when it was made and now why it feels so relatable today. Yeah, hopefully it will become less relatable. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if the plants win or we win. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But Jess, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. This was an absolute blast. And please tell people where they can find your work and uh, and your socials and all that jazz. Yeah, definitely. My socials are at Jessica Ross Comedy Instagram. You can check out my stuff on YouTube, typically through College Humor. I have a lot of videos there. Or if you're a Dropout subscriber, uh, you could see different shows that I wrote on. I wrote on Ultra Megatron, Team Go. I wrote on Team Katie, and I did stuff with D&D Dimension 20. So lots of stuff to check out there. Hell yeah. I encourage you all to check it out. I had a wonderful time with the gritty of brotherly love. Oh, uh, yes. yes. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the first ones we wrote our own erotica for it. That's right. Which which now the new, the erotic clubhouses, we write all fan fiction. We're just writing now as a opposed to reviewing the books, which has been very fun and crazy. <laughs> so definitely uh, check that out, folks. As far as my plugs, you can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. There's also a Patreon if you're enjoying the show where you can help support the show if you're enjoying it. There's all kinds of bonus episodes. We just did a mailbag, but there's also been stuff that we covered like EC Comics. We talked about Freaky Friday 2003, which is also the best horror movie <laughs> ever made. So all kinds of great stuff over there. and. Um, Yeah, that's it. Thanks again, Jess. Thank you. Bye. Bye.